Welcome to the Marion Road Christian Church Podcast. Marion Road exists to glorify God through worship, sharing the good news, making and developing disciples, and serving others. In 2005, the sociologist Christian Smith coined the term moral therapeutic deism as a summary of what his research had found to be sort of the dominant religious uh, line of thinking within America. And I understand that the phrase moral therapeutic deism doesn't exactly roll off the tongue. So to try to summarize or explain it a little more, he, he summarized it with really five key beliefs. And the first is that there is a God who exists, who created the world and watches over human life. The second is that God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other. The third is that the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about yourself. The fourth is that God is not particularly involved in someone's life, except when needed to solve a problem. And fifth and lastly, good people go to heaven when they die. Now that definition is about 20 years old at this point, but I still think it holds up relatively well as a summary of our world's prevailing notions about religion. And as common as these beliefs are, I would hope, even as you hear them read, that you could see how woefully short they fall of who God actually is. And the reason why this line of belief puts things uh, so woefully short is that it is a line of thinking that essentially puts us at the center. It essentially says that we can do whatever it is that we want, and God is available if we need him, but he's not directly involved in the day-to-day, and that is far too small of a picture of who God is and of the relationship that he desires to have with us. And just as we misunderstand God at times in our world today, God is similarly misunderstood when we read Scripture. The nations around ancient Israel believed in gods that had to be appeased so that they would give you what you wanted, believed to be involved in the day-to-day of life, just not always in positive ways. And so if you wanted something, you had to do what they asked so that they would send rain for your crops or allow you and your family to have more children or whatever it might be. And there are moments when we read through the Old Testament where we see Israel fall into the line of thinking that dominates the world around them about who God is like and how he should be approached. But at the end of the day, whether it's our day or the world of ancient Israel, at the end of the day, we don't need our opinions, we don't need our world's opinions on what God is like. What we need more than anything else is who God actually is. Because if God has spoken... If God has made himself known to us, then it no longer matters what I think, what you think, what our world thinks about what God is like. What matters is who God actually is. So as we continue our series today through the life of David, we are going to see who God actually is, and that comes into conflict with who God is thought to be. And we see the blessing that awaits us if we give our ideas of what we think God is like, if we give those up and take hold of who God actually is. But before we can get to King David today, we have to back up a little bit for a running start. 
Because you might know if you've read through the Old Testament that when God first frees his people from slavery in Egypt and he gives them his law, he gives them the instructions to build this thing called the Ark of the Covenant. There was a documentary about it by this uh, archaeologist named Indiana Jones. You can watch it if, if that interests you. I think, it's, I think it's real, but don't hold me to that. And the, the Ark of the Covenant was created as this place that was going to exist within the tabernacle. And the tabernacle was sort of this mobile sanctuary that Israel would carry with them as they traveled throughout the wilderness. And it was supposed to be the place where God's glory, where God's presence dwelt. That no matter where Israel went, they would get to a place and stop and they would set up their camp. And at the very center of that camp would be the tabernacle. And at the very center of the tabernacle would be the Ark of the Covenant. And it would be this box overlaid with gold and it would have sculptures of two angels on top of it. And that was supposed to be the place where God's glory dwelt. That any Israelite, anyone looking at the nation of Israel could look at their camp and could look at the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant in the middle of it and know that God was with them and that he was working on their behalf. But as Israel gets into the promised land, and they become a little more established, uh, they begin to take their cues from the nations around them about how God was supposed to be worshipped. And in 1 Samuel chapter 4, the Israelites are on the verge of going into battle against the Philistines. And at first, when they go into battle, things don't go well for them, and they're not sure what to do. And so someone gets the idea that, hey, maybe our problem is that we don't have the Ark of the Covenant with us. And so they go, they get the Ark of the Covenant, they bring it to the front lines of the battle, thinking everything's got to go well now because we have our good luck charm, our lucky rabbit's foot of the Ark of the Covenant with us. And instead, they, they lose the battle, and the Ark of the Covenant's captured. And the Philistines in 1 Samuel chapter 5 take the Ark of the Covenant back home with them. They put it in the temple of their god Dagon as a celebration, as a, as a trophy from their victory in battle, demonstrating their god's superiority of, of the god of the Israelites. But the morning after they put the Ark of the Covenant within their temple, a priest comes in and the, the statue of their god Dagon is laying down on the ground before the Ark of the Covenant. And the priest seems to not think much of it. He, he picks the statue up, puts it back in its place. He probably grumbles a little bit. You know, I told these kids not to be running through the temple because this is what will happen if, if they do. But, but other than that, he leaves, and that's about it. But then the next day, he comes in again, and the statue of Dagon is again laying down before the Ark of the Covenant. But his hands and his head have been broken off, and they are laying at the threshold of the entrance into the temple, a cultural sign that, that the god Dagon is completely powerless, has been completely defeated. The Philistines thought that their victory over Israel meant that their god was more powerful, but now they are seeing that this god of Israel is maybe a little more powerful than they suspected. So, after all of this, they decide that they don't want the Ark of the Covenant in their temple anymore, so they move it out of the temple, they send it to a different city, and the people of that city start to be afflicted with tumors, and so they decide they don't want it there, they move it to another city, and tumors start to happen amongst the people in that city as well, and so they start to move it to a third city, and the people in that city say, we don't want anything to do with this Ark of the Covenant, which I can understand at this point. And so they start to come up with a plan of what they are going to do instead, and we're told about it in 1 Samuel 6, starting at verse 7. The Philistines are discussing amongst themselves, and they say, Now then, get a new cart ready with two cows that have calved and have never been yoked. Hitch the cows to the cart, but take their calves away and pin them up. 
Take the ark of the Lord and put it on the cart, and in a chest beside it, put the gold objects we are sending back to him as a guilt offering. Send it on its way, but keep watching it. If it goes up to its own territory toward Beth Shemesh, then the Lord has brought this great disaster on us. But if it does not, then we will know that it was not his hand that struck us, but that it happened to us by chance. Now, I've been around just enough cows in my life to know that if you take a cow that has just had a calf and separate it from its calf, it is going to do everything in its power to get back to that calf as quickly as possible. And so that's what the Philistines are thinking here. Uh, But as soon as they put the ark in this cart, these two cows, even though they leave their calves behind and they head straight back for Israel, and the Philistines understand that this is the God of Israel that has been working among them. It has not been a coincidence. And so the ark comes back to Israel, and there's worship, and there's celebration when it arrives because the presence of God is back with his people, but there are some people who decide that, that out of curiosity they should look into the ark of the covenant, and they are struck dead when they do so. Because God is holy, coming into his presence is not a light thing. It's almost like coming into the presence of the Ark of the Covenant is like coming into the presence of electricity. You can come near, but you have to do it in a certain way, and if you don't, there can be dire consequences. And so all of that happens in the first few chapters of 1 Samuel, and then we don't really hear anything about the Ark of the Covenant until we get all the way to 2 Samuel chapter 6, which is where we'll be camping out today. And we're jumping ahead in the story. David is now king over Israel. He's setting up the city of Jerusalem to be his capital in his kingdom. And and as he's doing that, he desires to bring the Ark of the Covenant there. But this process of getting the Ark into Jerusalem becomes a little complicated, to say the least. Starting in 2 Samuel 6, verse 1, it says, David again brought together all the able young men of Israel, 30,000. He and all his men went to Baalah in Judah to bring up from there the Ark of God which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim on the ark. They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it, and Ahio was walking in front of it. David and all Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord with castanets, harps, lyres, timbrels, sistrums, and cymbals. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down, and he died there beside the ark of God. David brings 30,000 men with him to communicate the significance of this moment. After decades, the Ark of the Covenant is coming to Jerusalem. It's coming to be at the center of God's people again as it was supposed to be. And David and the people are celebrating with all their might before the Lord, singing and dancing. This is national celebration. And and right in the middle of the festivities, one of these oxen pulling the cart stumbles. The Ark wobbles a little bit in the cart. And Uzzah, who's one of the sons of this family that's been housing the ark all these years, reaches out to steady it, and when he touches it, God strikes him dead. It sort of stops the festivities. So why does God burn with anger in this moment, as the text says? I mean, wasn't Uzzah just trying to help? Would God rather the ark fall out of this cart onto the ground? Well, to try to answer that question, we have to go back to the commands God gave about how to transport the ark. 
Because back in Exodus chapter 25, God is laying out the blueprints of the Ark of the Covenant, and he describes how it should be transported. He says to put rings on each corner of the Ark, and then put poles through these rings, and then pick up the poles and, and carry the Ark wherever it is that you're going to go. So that's not what's happening here in this scene. So where did David and his men get the idea to move the Ark by having animals pull it on a cart? Well you remember, that's how the Philistines had sent it back to Israel. David and his men are approaching the Ark of the Covenant just how the Philistines had done it, instead of how God commanded them to approach it. And Uzzah struck dead for touching the Ark because it was never supposed to be in a cart where someone would need to touch it in the first place. Approaching God on our terms brings dire consequences. And this is not the case because God's just particular and wants to be approached in a certain way, and if you get out of line, he's going to strike you dead. It's because God is holy, and we are not. No imperfect human being can come into God's presence and survive. God is too holy, too perfect, too magnificent for an imperfect person like you, me, David, or Uzzah to be able to come into his presence and survive. And David and his men took their cues from the Philistines, viewing God as something that has to be appeased or manipulated so that life will go your way. And that is not the God of Israel. He's the one true God of all things. He is holy, he's transcendent, and he's powerful. And you don't come into the presence of someone like that lightly. And God has not changed, even today. Yes, we can draw near to God because of Jesus. That's absolutely true. We'll talk about that more here in a bit. But that has not changed the fact that God is holy. We can become so focused on having a relationship with God that we forget who it is we are coming into a relationship with. He is the one who spoke all of creation into existence. He sees all. He knows all. He always has. He always will. That is not someone you just work into your schedule when life is not going well for you. The writer Annie Dillard says that when we ask for God to show up, we usually don't understand what we're saying. She says it's like we're, we're children sitting around playing with a chemistry set, not realizing that we're holding a stick of dynamite. She, says, she continues and says, it's madness to wear lady straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. And that might sound dramatic. There's a part of me that even as I hear that, that says, I mean, we're just going to church. You sing some songs, you pray some prayers, you hear from scripture, you take communion, you go home. But the God we encounter in our worship, the God we are encountering right now is the one true God of the universe. Our world tells us that he exists for our sake and therefore we can saunter in and say whatever we want and he'll pat us on the head just glad we showed up one more time. Scripture says that if we saw him as he actually is, it would destroy us. And if we are going to experience the presence of God, It must be on his terms, not on ours. David experiences this in this moment and is left to decide what to do next. And we pick the story up at verse 9. It says, David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite for three months, and the Lord blessed him and his entire household. 
Now King David was told, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went to bring up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might, while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sounds of trumpets. And the idea of God burning with anger, as verse 7 says, sounds like it's going to take a while for God to cool off, or at least it does to me. Now, David thought he understood what God wanted, bringing the ark to Jerusalem, but now all this has happened, so to be safe, they just stop, they just leave the ark at the home of Obed-Edom, and the ark is just there for three months, but we are told that he is blessed during that time. We're not told what that looks like, but whatever happens, it's made clear that God is blessing this household, and they're blessing, he's blessing this household because the ark of the covenant is there. Which raises the question of, did God change his mind? Did he just work through his anger really quickly in just a couple of verses here? Those might be the explanations we have to come up with if God was like us, but he is not. God desires to draw near to his people. He desires to pour his blessings out on them on his terms. And that's for our good. God's not required to draw near to us at all, yet he wants to. His anger is not the end of the story. He desires to draw near when we approach him on his terms. That's the only way that that is possible. It's not a relationship we get to control. David does not get to approach God as if he's a Philistine God who needs to be appeased. We do not get to approach God as if he's just there to meet our needs. He is to be approached as he is, and when we do that, blessing results. But when we say that God desires to bless us, we have to be clear about what we mean. Typically in our world, blessings mean material enrichment. We want to be blessed with a raise, with a new car, with a bigger house, with a promotion. And in that line of thinking, a statement like God desires to bless us sounds a lot like all I have to do is pray a magic prayer and God will make me healthy, wealthy, and wise. And that line of thinking sounds a lot like a Philistine approach to God. So when I say God desires to bless us, I'm not saying God wants to give you everything you want if you will just put a little more in the offering box. I'm saying God desires to bless you with his presence. Before we need anything else, we need the presence of the one true God. If God is who he says that he is, then it makes no sense for us to come to him with a shopping list of things, of of blessings we want from him. Because God knows more than we do. And when we stop playing the games of trying to control God or get him to work for our ends, we open ourselves up to his presence so that we can know him and have the life he desires for us. As David begins to understand that, he is prepared to take the ark into Jerusalem and he's able to celebrate and worship as that happens. As they begin the journey, they stop after six steps out of joy to offer a sacrifice to God. They get into Jerusalem and David is taking the position of leading the people in worship, dancing before God with all his might, celebrating that the ark of the covenant has made it to Jerusalem, leading the people in sacrifice and offerings to praise God for the blessings he is pouring out. It would seem like we've all learned a lesson here about what it means to truly worship God. God, but we keep reading, and not everyone's learned the lesson. Picking up at verse 20, it says, When David returned home, after getting the ark to Jerusalem, he returned home to bless his household, Michal, daughter of Saul, 
came out to meet him and said, How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. David said to Michal, It was before the Lord, who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house, when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel, I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. Backing up, after David defeated Goliath, he married Saul's daughter, Michal. And while David was on the run from Saul, she was married off to someone else, but now she's come back into the house of David. She's had to deal with the loss of her father, uh, Saul, her brother, Jonathan, as the kingship transitions from Saul to David. And after going through all that, she cannot believe how David conducts himself during this procession. He comes home, and if I can paraphrase her words to him, her greeting is kind of a sarcastic comment of, yeah, you sure looked like a king out there, David, running around in your skivvies dancing for all the girls out there. And David reacts strongly, if you notice there, but, but it's not for his own sake. He's defensive of his worship because it was for God. And that's a perspective Saul never had. It might seem hurtful for David to bring up the fact that he has become king instead of Michal's father, Saul. But even though his comments here probably would not be advised by a marriage counselor, it's the heart of the issue. Saul's downfall as a king was that he was more concerned with himself and with the perception of others than he was with God. As Michal watches David worship with all his might, her first thought is, what are the people going to think? And in that, she sounds a lot like her father. Because that's a self-serving approach to worship. Saul had been very interested in offering God sacrifices, assuming that it helped him get ahead. Michal's fine with worship of God, as long as it doesn't get in the way of David's image. In fact, the only time we're ever told of Saul interacting with the Ark of the Covenant is in 1 Samuel chapter 14, when he brought it out to a battlefield as a good luck charm. Saul's interest in the Ark was for his own sake. David's interest in the ark is to honor God. Michal's problem with David stems from the fact that she's viewing worship the way that her dad did, as something to be used for our sake. David understands that worship is not about protecting his own image, but it is about the glory of God, and therefore he has no problem looking like a fool. In fact, he says he will become even more undignified, even more humiliated, because those who understand what true worship is supposed to look like will see his worship for what it is, giving God the honor he is worthy of. And in our world where worship is so often viewed as something that is for us, these few verses force me to ask how often I have been guilty of being McCall instead of David. How often I have stood in worship services and been focused on myself instead of on God. How often I have yelled and screamed and high-fived complete strangers at a St. Louis Cardinals game and also stood in worship services and thought, I, if I take my hands out of my pockets right now, someone's going to notice and that's going to be weird. Now I get it. I, I've been around long enough to know 
we're not going to have someone dancing down the aisles after the sermon today, unless a teenager does it just to prove me wrong. But I'm not saying that being expressive in worship is the most important thing, because that's not true. You can be expressive in worship and make it about yourself just as easily as you can not be expressive and make things about yourself. But this contrast right here in these few verses forces us to ask whether or not we do what we do in worship for our sake or for God's. We can come into this room thinking about ourselves and therefore not engage at all or engage so that everyone will look at us. Or we can come into this room with an awareness that God is living and active and present and desires us to live before him and allow that to set the direction for our actions here and everywhere else, even if it does lead to us becoming undignified, to use David's words. And when we take that perspective, we see in the last few verses I want to read today that God's blessing awaits us. Because after all these events in chapter 6, we're told in chapter 7 that David decides that he doesn't just want to set up the, the tabernacle in Jerusalem. He wants to build a house. He wants to build a temple to put the Ark of the Covenant within. And at first, the prophet Nathan tells David that he should go ahead with this plan. But then God gives a message to Nathan, who then passes it on to David, picking up in 2 Samuel 7 at verse 8. It says, Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I've been with you wherever you have gone, and I've cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning, and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies." The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. The one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Throughout David's entire story, God has been giving to him. He gave him the kingship when he was just the shepherd boy, the youngest in his family. And God is not done giving yet. Because God's going to work through David and his descendants to establish his people into everything he always intended for them to be. This isn't a reward that God is now giving David because he led worship in the right way in the last chapter. This is for the sake of God completing his purposes in the world. David's worship was for God's sake, not for his own. And now God says that he is going to bless David and his family and his descendants, not for the sake of David, but for the sake of making all things right, which he has been working to do ever since sin first entered the world in Genesis chapter 3. And that's the goal of our worship. It's not so that we can get something out of it. It's not so that we can get on God's good side and then life will go well. It's so that God can be glorified through us as he completes his purposes for us and for the world. When David puts his heart after God's, he puts himself in this position where God can work through him 
and his descendants. And that means that in the short term, God is going to bless David and his son Solomon, who will build the temple after him, but extends far beyond that. Because if you read through this passage, there are some parts that seem pretty clearly about Solomon, but if you know the rest of the story, there comes a time when Solomon dies. And sure, descendants of David reign after that, but that doesn't last forever. We don't get complete fulfillment of this promise to David until we turn over to the New Testament. And we read about Jesus, who, as Paul says in Romans chapter 1, was descended from David in terms of his earthly life, but through the Holy Spirit, was appointed Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. He is the descendant of David who has come to reign forever and fulfill all God's purposes. And because Jesus has done that, you and I can draw near to God. We can draw near to God as he actually is, which is what we actually need. We don't need an inferior version of God. We don't need a God who is distant and wants us to be nice to people but doesn't ask for much beyond that. We need the real, living, and active God who is present among us. We need the one who rules over all things. We need the one who desires to bless us and calls us close to him so that we can experience that blessing. And we only find that blessing when we draw near to God's presence. We don't need a God that can help us get ahead in the world. We don't need a God who promises us health as long as we give him enough things. We don't need a vending machine. We don't need a God we treat as an intern who does our bidding. We need the real, true God who comes to us as he is with the offer of blessing and life when we draw near to him. You and I don't need anything from God any more than we need his presence. And when we come into that presence, when we come to him as he actually is, We are stepping into the life God created us to have. And that life's available through Jesus. Through the one that they called Emmanuel, which means God with us. He has come so that we might draw near to God and be blessed. So do not settle for your own ideas of what you think God might be like. Do not settle for keeping God at a distance and coming to him if you need something. Come near to him and experience life. If you need help figuring, what that looks, figuring out what that looks like, we'd love to talk with you, to pray with you, to walk alongside you during the rest of our time together today, either up front afterwards or out at the Welcome Center after the service, so we can help you experience life with God. Because He deserves all our worship, all our praise, for all time, so that we might be blessed as we worship Him. Let's pray. God, we thank you for who you are. Forgive us for when we have short-sighted ideas of what you are like, where we want you on our terms instead of on yours. Help us come to you in humility and in faith to bow our knee before you, our one true king, so that we might have life with you. God, we ask that you would be glorified through us, through the presence of your Holy Spirit working among us, that your will would be done in and through us. Um, so that we and the world might know your good and perfect love. We ask all this in your son's name. Amen. We hope that you are encouraged and challenged by this message given by our own senior pastor, Monty French.